Hi, you're listening to Koldodi Messianic Congregation's weekly podcast. Join us in person for our weekly Shabbat services every Saturday at 11 a.m. We meet at 3534 West End Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website at koldodi.org or follow us on Facebook and watch us live at facebook.com forward slash Nashville. And now, here's Rabbi Ken's latest message. So Shabbat Shalom. Two weeks ago, I did a drosh on, on what to do if your um, children have fallen away from the Lord. You know, we talked about Eli the Cohen. You know, we fast, we pray, you know. So what I wanted to talk about today is a continuation of that. God just kept downloading more stuff to me, so I hope it's received today. But I realized when I talked about Nadrash, Drosh, I didn't give you enough practical steps toward prevention of these situations. So that's what I wanted to get into today. So I realized something about myself. I live in the show me how. Show me the step by step. Don't just give me a bunch of good emotional sayings. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? So have you ever been to a service where the pastor just shouted a bunch of things and you're like, yeah, that was good. And then you walked away with like, well, how do I put that into action? That, that, that's, that's me. I, I want to figure out how do I put that into action. So how many are hands-on learners? All right. How many are read-the-manual learners? We got one. All right. Most of us are hands-on. And we just kind of wing it, and we have parts left over. You know what I mean? Um, so Deuteronomy 6, 7, you will teach them diligently to your children. So the word I shared last time was shanan, which means to sharpen. So how do we sharpen? So one thing I want to point out uh, in Deuteronomy was written to the men of that time. So... I think a lot of the time, we as men, we like to punt things, right? We punt the teaching to our wives. We punt our God-given commandments to teach our children to the women. This is easy to let happen as our wives are great teachers, aren't they? All right, no amens there. (laughs) I think they're great teachers. Hey, thank you. Our wives can teach. All right, so I'm not taking that away from them. They can teach, but we as men also must teach. So Ephesians 5, 25 and and 26. I want you to think about this verse in the allegory to us. Husbands, love your wives as Messiah also loved his community and gave himself up for her, making her holy, having cleansed her by immersion in the word. So who's the teacher in this situation? It's Rabbi, Rabbi Yeshua. He sanctified his bride in the word. 
In the same way, husbands, love your wives in this sacrificial way, and you be the teacher. So I once saw a Christian diagram that kind of had, you know, it has the roles underneath the diagram. Husbands, this is your role. Wives, this is your role. Children, this is your role. And it had the teacher under the wife. It didn't even say anything under the, the man. So I was, uh, I was a bit shocked. So number one, pra- practical application for us men. Do not punt the duties to your wife. Teach our children. Set aside time for this. Maybe hold a family Bible study. It's not something your kids will initially want to do. But the results are beneficial. If you have older kids, take them out to coffee. Have those reasonable discussions regarding scripture, life, and the daily battles. Wives, hopefully I don't get any flack for this one. Wives, allow your husbands to do this by the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So sometimes wives will see a void and just take it on themselves. If your husband is an unbeliever, that's a different story. But if your husband is a believer, definitely continue to teach, but do not pressure your husband into his own role. This is a bad strategy. This will not only push further away from it, but there will be, well, I won't get into that. I don't have a good answer for why that is. But this, this, this proverb might put things into perspective. A nagging wife is like a water going drip, drip, drip on a rainy day. How can you keep her quiet? Have you ever tried to stop the wind or ever tried to hold a handful of oil? I can barely get through that verse without laughing. Um, and I only read that verse because Christy begged me to. So, How does a wife get her husband to take on his own role. So this is sort of like Jewish evangelism in the same aspect as it has to be carefully thought out. Same thing applies if a man is trying to talk to his wife about her roles. There is a right way and a wrong way to go about this. But what we can do is pray and set the stage. In other words, Commit to your own roles and set the stage for them to do, to do theirs. So if, if, if you're in this situation, um, I know each situation is a case-by-case case situation, but I have some ideas on how to work this out. You can come talk to me afterward if, you, if that is your situation. So Pastor Vadi Bakum said, Family shepherds must see the spiritual leadership of their families as their God-given duty. This is not a program. This is the responsibility God has laid at the doorstep of every man who carries the title Father. Also, don't rely on the once-a-week teaching of your congregation. This teaching may be good, but if it is all they are getting, they might starve to death. Amen? Amen. Number two, all right, be transparent as possible. As a parent, understanding kids will know when you are going through the motions, when you are faking it, when there is hypocrisy. Talking with some ministry kids and what pushed them into rebellion 
was seeing how the sausage was made. Their words, not mine. <laughs> seeing what, their, present, what they, their parents presented versus what was behind the scenes. In other words, be real. Do not be above reproach. Allow them to express what they see and repent for how you behaved if you're in the wrong. It's not... Excuse me, I lost my place. Okay. It's not our mistakes that ruin relationships. It's our refusal to own it and repair it. 1 Timothy 4.12 Do not let anyone despise your youth. We shouldn't despise it either with our own children. Also, don't be a complete mess and try to tell your kids to go to church or synagogue. That kind of goes without saying, right? But I have personal experience here. My mom once threw a knife at my brother for not wanting to go to church. That's an example of what not to do. So if you need help, go get some help. And the best analogy I can give here is if you fly commercially, they'll tell you when the oxygen mask dropped down, first what? Put it on yourself. And then put one on your child. Do not reach for the mask and just put it on your child. Why? Because you both may die in that case. So get the help if you need it. Okay, the why. This is probably my favorite point. The why. Super why. Okay. All right. Inquiring minds want to know. Anybody remember that? From the inquirer? One, one person. I want to know. I want to know. Okay. Although faith is an instrument God wants us to have to obtain salvation, we should have good reasons. Do not just say to them in regards to every challenge, just have faith. Today, our kids face cultural challenges we never had to face. Don't just give cookie-cutter answers. We have told them it is true, the gospel, but have we told them why it is true? Have we given them the good reasons as to why we believe what we believe? Did you know the scriptures command us to? 1 Peter 3.15 Instead, sanctify Messiah as your Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Also, we are to love the Lord our God. This is Judaism, folks. Not just Christianity. We are to love the Lord our our God, our heart, soul, and mind. This is why I love apologetics. If if you have not studied apologetics, I highly recommend you do, especially if you have children. Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel are some examples of apologists who have written many good books for the evidences of the resurrection, origin of life, and the universe. By the way, The most common answer amongst uh, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and things like that is just have faith. They say that because the truth is not on their side. But the truth is on yours. So don't hesitate to teach the evidence. So speaking of that, 
do you have good reasons why you are not Jehovah's Witness, why you are not Mormons? Do you have good reasons why you're not Muslim? Apologetics will also help in those areas too. So in dealing with experiences, your child is likely going to have a different experience. They can put their trust in your experience, but we want them to have their own, amen? They want that too. Better to teach them the evidence of our faith so that they can know it is true. Also, I just want to say some experiences and emotions can go up and they can go down. But some could take grief or a bad emotional situation and turn from God. But if they have the evidence that is true beyond a shadow of a doubt, they can put their fleeting emotions in check. Apologist Alyssa Childers, she's actually a former CCM recording artist. She said, teaching our kids to base their beliefs in what is true rather than what feels right will help them from walking away when their faith no longer gives them the feels. So I just want to tell a story real quick. My friend who is an apologetic, uh, apologetics teacher, he's uh, suffering uh, from Crohn's disease. I don't know if you know much about that, but it's an internal disease. And uh, he was given a... He was, he was teaching at a conference... And this, in, in the middle of teaching on the resurrection, he was, he's a resurrection teacher expert. Um, in the middle of teaching that, he had what they call like a flare-up or something, and he had to stop. And so his friend went to the stage and finished it for him. Um, and then afterward, like a faith healer type teacher came, prayed over him, and said, God just told me, you are healed and he rejoiced, yes, I receive it, yes, Lord, amen. He said, I found out about an hour later I wasn't healed with another flare-up. He said, that would have pushed me away, but I sat in my hotel room saying, the evidence of Yeshua's resurrection is true. The evidence of Yeshua's resurrection is true. It's indisputable. And he had to repeat that back to himself because that bad emotional experience would have pushed him away. Okay. Number four, the battles we choose. With your kids, do not fight every battle, but only the one for their soul, which starts with the mind. Have you seen parents do that? Anyone? Seen parents fight the wrong battles? Fruitless battles on every little thing, that will push them away. Fight only the important ones. Charles Spurgeon said, consider how precious a soul must be when both God and the devil are after it. Part of this is what are we emphasizing? And uh, you know here at Korodi what we emphasize, Yeshua, Amen. A friend of mine that has a child brought up in a believing home now identifies as something else. This is a a Jewish child. This child will still not touch pork, shellfish, and observes all the Moedim. 
Could we possibly overemphasize Jewish identity? Yeah. But all of the Torah, especially the moral commands, are synonymous with Jewish identity, not just dietary laws. But here is what the emphasis needs to be. Yeshua and him crucified. Yeshua and him crucified. Yeshua and him resurrected. So, also, our focus needs to be redemption, faithfulness, mercy, kindness. Could we possibly end up being like the Pharisees who overemphasized the wrong things? Yeshua said to them, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, we can emphasize Jewish identity, but we shouldn't neglect it. But that should be in the backseat to the more important matters of the law. Amen? Lively lively crowd today. So only fight the battle for their soul, which starts with the mind. But also fight the battle of their poor musical taste. <laughs> just kidding. Just, just kidding. Okay. Um, how am I on time, Sean? Sean's right after me. Oh, man. It's overblown. All right, so I had a long old thing about instructions for children, but I'm going to stop right there. Shabbat Shalom. Most of you know my husband, Sean. If you don't, that's my husband, Sean. So I'm going to um, read some scriptures. I love when my husband preaches, actually. He doesn't do it enough, but he's got some time, so I'm glad he's uh, preaching right now because he preaches like no one I know on the Torah. He, he really, I love hearing him point to Yeshua from the Torah. There's nothing like it. So I'm going to read some passages from the Torah, from Devarim, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the mitzvot of Adonai your God that I am commanding you today... But the curse, if you do not listen to the mitzvot of Adonai your God, but turn from the way I am commanding you today to go after other gods you have not known. I'm going to skip down to chapter 12, 1 through 3. These are the statutes and ordinances that you are to make sure to do in the land that Adonai, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You must utterly destroy all the places where the nations that you will dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You are to tear down their altars, smash their pillars, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, and cut down the carved images of their gods, and you are to obliterate their name from that place." Continuing in 13, 2 through 4. Suppose a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises up among you and gives you a sign or wonder, 
And the sign or wonder he spoke to you comes true while saying, let's follow other gods that you have not known and let's serve them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Adonai your God is testing you to find out whether you love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Continuing again to chapter 15, 7 through 8. If there is a poor man among you, any of your brothers within any of your gates in your land that Adonai your God is giving you, you are not to harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Rather, you must surely open your hand to him and you must surely lend him enough for his need, whatever he is lacking. The Torah of Adonai. Amen. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King. Lord, I first ask that you would remind me of my weaknesses. Lord, you encourage us to do something that is so contrary to our nature, that is, boast in our weaknesses. Um, celebrate when we feel broken and not together. And you warn us, Father, that when we are feeling strong, uh, to fix our eyes on you. And so, Lord, I pray like Paul that what would matter most is not the eloquence of what comes out of my mouth, uh, but the fact that your spirit would be present in power and in conviction, which is not through words of man, um, but through the presence of your spirit and the working of your power in our lives. And I pray, God, that the the gospel, the reality of your goodness, of your holiness, of our inability um, to follow imperfection, that law, would not cause us to run away, but would cause us to run towards our Messiah, Yeshua. And so I pray, Father God, that through the teaching of your law, that we would be enamored with who you are, and with the fact that you sent your son on our behalf so that his righteousness would be illuminated through us. It's in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua, I pray. Amen. Anytime I preach, I always like to do it out of the Torah because of its simplicity. It just gives me an opportunity to know exactly the passage I'm supposed to be preaching from and just ask God to illuminate um, something from his word. And so, and anytime I preach, by the way, I don't invent anything new. Um, I have a very simple structure. And I always start off with, where are we in the Torah? And so we are in the book of Deuteronomy, as many of you know. It is the final book of uh, the Torah, which is really just made up of chapters, which we call books, because it all has a very clear message in which God was trying to communicate through his prophet Moses. What makes Deuteronomy unique, though, is not just that it's the last book, but it really is a compilation. In other words, this was Moses' final will and testament to the children of Israel. We are told that he delivered this message on the banks of the Jordan prior to them entering into the Holy Land. 
Yes, they did kind of begin to enter into some of the Transjordan you know, uh, places that God had given them, but it really wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. And we are told at the very beginning of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 1 that it's, they're now 40 years in the desert. Moses is very old. He knows that he is not going to enter into the land, and he knows he's going to die. It's in the 11th month of the 40th year, so just prior to them entering into the land. And the, what's unique about the book of Deuteronomy is that it is primarily just a repetition of everything else that he's delivered. That is why in the book of Deuteronomy you find him, you know, once again talking about the Ten Commandments, once again talking about the festivals. I mean, there's not much new that he's introducing. However, what he is doing is he's elaborating. He's explaining more, giving a bit more details, being illustrative, giving an illustration of the laws. The best way I can think of it is, and I, did, I didn't make this analogy up, it was actually given to me, but it's kind of like a father talking to his son the afternoon before he goes off to prom. And you could picture the father you know, sitting down with the son saying, hey, I've told you these things over and over and over again. But I'm going to take a moment to really sit down and share with you a little bit more in detail about this evening. This evening could be the greatest night of your life that you will remember forever, or the consequences of poor choices can really bring destruction or alter the course of the rest of your life. So yes, you know, I've taught you some dance moves, but today, you need to trust me that they work. Just go, have fun. Yes, I've told you about the birds and the bees, but let me explain to you a little bit more in detail about what this evening is going to look like. You may experience things that you've never seen. I'm not going to be there. You're going to be exposed to kids who are going to be ch making lifestyle choices and pressuring you to do so. And let me tell you what those consequences lead to. Let me tell you stories from my childhood of friends I had. And this is kind of what Moses is doing before the children of Israel. You're about to enter the land. I am not going with you. Let me explain to you not only the commands of God, but really exaggerate, not exaggerate, but elaborate on its blessings and its curses. And that's really the theme of the entire book of Deuteronomy. I hold before you blessings if you follow my commands, and I hold before you curses if you choose not to obey them. But don't forget how the book of Deuteronomy also ends. It informs us of God's plan of ultimate restoration through the coming of a future prophet. And so you have in Deuteronomy the laws to encourage the children of Israel to pursue God and to experience blessing, the consequences, curse, but also that the ultimate restoration, one a future prophet is going to come who's going to be even greater than him. Now, as far as the actual Torah portion is concerned, the book of Deuteronomy is broken up into three sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 11, which is a preamble, beginning instructions. It's very simple if you've read it. But chapter 12 begins in a lot more detail the covenant code. And this is where he really goes into the repetition and explanation 
of these various different commands. And that is exactly where we are. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 26, is the beginning of the Torah portion that we have today. And that is where we get the famous, you know, sayings about the blessing and the curse, the promise of blessing of obedience, the promise of curse for disobedience. And then he informs them that he wants them to do a ceremony, that he wants half of the nation of Israel, when they get to the land, to go to Mount Ebal and to pronounce the curses, or the blessings rather, and uh, sorry, the curses, and to go to Mount, the other half of the community of Israel, to go to Mount Gerizim and pronounce the blessings. And they're to be shouting them back to one another. It's a formal ceremony, which actually happens in Joshua chapter 8. But then the second section of this Torah portion, which begins in chapter 12, is all about the instructions for life in the new land. And it really starts off with six chapters, which is life of worship for the people of God. He tells us first that there's going to be a central place of worship. Remember, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And the people of Israel were able to perform their sacrifices before the tabernacle, and it kept moving. But now when they enter into the land, there's going to be one place in which you could only perform sacrifices. He doesn't inform them yet where it's going to be, but he tells them, hey, there's going to be one place, and outside of that place, you are not allowed to perform any formal sacrifices. He also gives them instructions about what to do about the altars and the high places of the natives of the land. Remember, they're going in to conquer the Canaanites, and as they go throughout the country, they're going to start seeing all these altars, all these high places, the places in which the natives worship the gods of the land. And Moses is very specific. You are to obliterate them. You are to no longer use the natives' forms and methods of worship, or really understanding the world, because it wasn't just about worship. It was about trying to understand and the world around you. But we're also given in this particular section of the Torah instructions or warnings against not allowing others to entice you to go to other gods, instructions about giving first tithe, second tithe, and third tithe, if you think I'm lying, just go in the book and actually read that. There's actually three different types of tithes that he instructs them to give them. He also gives them instructions about how to maintain holiness. This is where we see about a summary about clean and unclean animals. He gives them instructions about how to care for the poor, regarding instructions about regarding how to care for firstborn animals and what to do with them, and instructions regarding the pilgrim fest, the three festivals in which the children of Israel were to go to Jerusalem. That is all in the four, five chapters of the Torah portion for this week. And what's interesting is this particular section of the Torah, or actually the book of Deuteronomy, which is about from chapters 12 through 26, which is the elaboration on the laws, notice that it has specifically starts with how Israel is to worship God. It doesn't go into how they're supposed to be governed, moral, legal, ethical instructions. That all comes later. And I believe the reason why Moses did this was because that everything we're supposed to do, all great moral, legal, ethical instruction first has to come out of proper worship of the God of Israel. 
Now, I always like to ask the question when I'm done reading the Torah portion, so what? What in the world does any of this have to do with me today? When I started meditating on this, I often thought to myself, personally, you know, God has laid out these instructions. He has given us these promises. Why is it then that I find myself oftentimes not even believing this? I go through periods of despair. I go through periods of just anger and frustration in my life. And yet, the promises are right here. I want to take away and ask myself, do I you know, what they call V-Bucks or Fortnite things. And I actually made him sign a contract. I was like, I read it to him, you know, because I don't know about your kids, but my kids, they seem to twist the things I say and forget half of it. And I don't remember because I'm tired most of the time. So did I really not remember to, to include this? So I wrote it out, had him read it, had him sign it, had a witness, my wife. And at this point, if my son you know, finds, you know, a character he really wants, guess what? Did you do these things? If you didn't, sorry. I feel like in this Torah portion, God has given us glimpses. If we want blessing in our lives, he has given us ways to experience that. So I want to talk about three that really popped out at me. And again, we're kind of like my son. We're not experiencing the blessings of God are we doing these things? We have no excuses. So one of them is in the very beginning of the section, my wife read it, where he tells us, Moses, that the children of Israel are supposed to obliterate the altars. He actually uses that word twice. And in case you're wondering in Hebrew, 
you know, Moses, you know, perhaps he needed an editor, but, you know, if it was modern times, an editor would have said, use it only once. Why are you using it twice? Well, back in the day, they didn't use exclamation points. They reiterated things to emphasize. And so it's very obvious that Moses is trying to tell the children of Israel, destroy the altars. And in case you're wondering what to destroy, if you read in chapter 12, he gets very specific. You're to destroy everything. And he says, you're to destroy the poles. You're to destroy the grounds. I mean, it, there's no question what Moses is telling them, which is the forms and methods in which the natives used to try to manipulate their surroundings, to try to get blessings, to try to get rain, you know, to understand the world, you are not to follow those. You are children of, you know, the God of Israel, and I am your source of understanding the world around you, not these idols. And so the same is true for us, which is, yes, we don't have pagan altars that we need to destroy, but there are systems, there are ways in which this world has taught us to find our identity, to find our happiness, to bring about peace in our lives, which are not in line with the gospel. You know, the question is, have I destroyed those altars? Have I obliterated them? When I'm in a period of despair, what am I going to? Is my first source, you know, falling on my knees and asking God to you know, give me the strength, to give me the wisdom, to give me the support, or am I just, you know, running to whatever vices that I choose to go to at that time? The second thing is we are warned to guard against influences. In other words, watch our company. He gives a list, Moses, of three people who will try to influence us or influence the community of Israel to walk away from their God, to pursue other gods. One is false prophets. These are people who actually perform legitimate signs and wonders, but whose message is contrary. In other words, their message is pushing them away from the God of Israel. Secondly, family and friends. And thirdly, cities and cultures. And so I ask, my, ask myself the question, am I really trying to guard myself against the most important places of influence in my life. Again, it's, this is not outsiders. It's protect yourself against false prophets. Protect yourself against family or friends who just try to subtly push you away from God. Protect yourself from the cities and cultures in which you live in, which you, you can't avoid. And then thirdly, this, this one cut to my heart, which is, I call it, don't become a hater. Keep your heart soft towards people. That one last passage that my wife read was probably the most convicting passage that I found in the Torah portion. Chapter 15, verse 7 and 8, it's talking about the poor. If there is any poor among you, any of your brothers within your gates, in your land that Adonai your God is giving you, you are not to harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. Rather, you must surely open your hand and you must surely lend him enough for his need, whatever he is lacking. There's an entire section about how 
Moses wanted the children of Israel to care for the poor around them. Had to do with canceling debt. Had to do with helping one in need. Service was not to exceed six years. But that last passage, in other words, have an open hand toward the poor. I don't know about you, but I struggle having compassion with people. I struggle, you know, I have, I just, to be honest, my wife will tell you, I have been gifted with an unlimited amount of energy. Um, well, my kids have definitely put that down a little bit. But to me, working a 12, 14-hour day, getting five hours of sleep, I'm ready to do it again. And so I, ha- I have a struggle with condescendingly look on those who do not either have that same sense of energy, who aren't as able as I am in certain areas. And, you know, the worst thing I can do is harden my heart towards people, not just, not just poverty-stricken people, but people who are different than I am, who have different capacity, capacities than I do. You know, how many times have you said, or you've heard it said, I love my job except for the people? I love church except for the people. I love congregation except for the people. I was convicted by this passage that, again, we were reminded that there will always be the poor among us. And here is Moses saying, don't harden your heart. Have an open hand. There's not much instruction. He doesn't give a list of the 10 questions we're supposed to be asking before we actually open up our wallets or we go the extra mile. He just says, Make sure your heart is open. And so my reflection from the Torah portion was, okay, have I truly obliterated the altars in my life? The things that I run to for sources of strength and understanding that are, have nothing to do with God, and they exist in my life. Am I truly watching my company to make sure that I'm not being influence to walk away from the Lord in subtle ways. There are certain podcasts now that I have realized that of thinkers that I cannot listen to because they're brilliant men or women that have a very different worldview. And the more I listen to them, the more I find myself doubting certain truths or questioning the validity of certain things that are inconvenient to myself or to my culture. And lastly, am I keeping my heart soft towards others who are not like myself. So I told you about this brilliant contract I came up with my son Jacob. I was in New York this past Monday, and I was sitting down with a good close friend of mine who's also now going to become my co-worker at Jews for Jesus, and his wife. And I was sharing, we were just talking, he's got older kids, and I hadn't seen them in years, and we were kind of just talking about the challenges, and I mentioned about this contract that I have with my son, and I'm excited, hopeful, and she just looks at me, only like a woman can, and says, what are you going to do when it doesn't work? What are you going to do when you try to push this on your son, and all he does is resent you even more? I had no good answer for that yet. I may not. But the truth of the matter is, is that's the same contractual agreement that Moses is presenting to the children of Israel. I give you blessings if you follow. I give you curses if you don't. 
what happens when Israel fails. Because we are told that we are going to fail, not just them, but all of us. And that's where the messianic hope comes in, the provision. If you look at chapter 12, the very beginning, verses 4 through 5, it says, You are not to act like this toward Adonai your God, talking about the altars. Rather, you are to seek only the place your God chooses from all the tribes to put his name to dwell. There you will come. Think about this. Moses has communicated to the children of Israel about this omnipresent God, sovereign over all the universe, present at all times amongst all people, very different than some of the gods in which the natives have been worshiping. And yet, he's instructing them now that God is going to condescend himself to be present at one particular place where he will choose his name to dwell. And there, and only there, are you to bring your atoning sacrifices, your, your free will offerings, any means by which you want to reconcile yourself to God. A very specific geographical location. Why did he do that? Because he was giving a picture of what would ultimately happen when God condescended himself into one person, where his name would specifically dwell, where we bring our sacrifices, in which through that one specific person, we are fully reconciled to God. Yes, we are to be zealous to go after the instructions of God. But that zealousness should either do, can only do one of two things. It either should reveal our self-righteousness, that no, your compassion for the poor is not good enough. Don't fool yourself. Or it should reveal his holiness in a way that makes us realize it's so much more epic and so much greater than we could have ever fathomed. And therefore, we need that place, that person to come and to be our reconciliation, to give us that hope, or else the law will either, again, only destroy us or cause us to be, unfortunately become self-righteous in an unhealthy way. And so, as I meditate on this passage, Father, I pray that each and every one of us would be uniquely zealous for your truth. That, Father God, when we are experiencing turmoil, when we are experiencing despair, when things are not going correctly, that the first place we look is, are we following your truths? But more importantly, may that reality also cause us to look up and to look towards the one who provides the ultimate mercy, the ultimate compassion through the Messiah Jesus and promises to give us the strength and the hope that all things will be made right in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Father, thank you for your instruction, which gives us life. And thank you for your Messiah, who gives us ultimate hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Ya er Adonai panavelecha veichunecha. Yisa Adonai panavelecha veasem lecha. Shalom. May God bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord bestow favor upon you and give you Amen. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.